Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. We're delighted to be back with you again this week. And this week, we welcome back Josh Stein, the Attorney General of North Carolina, the Honorable Josh Stein, who was recently re-elected to that post. Uh, he first became North Carolina's 50th Attorney General on January 1st of 2017. And so now that means he is uh, in his second term in this in this role. Well, um, uh, first of all, uh, Attorney General, welcome to the program. Delighted that you will take the time to be with us and share your thoughts with our listeners across the state of North Carolina. Well, Don, it is always a pleasure. Appreciate the opportunity to be with you. Well, you know, we have seen, uh, and I, I guess this is really not different because we, we always think of current things as being somewhat different than things in the past, but the last year, uh, and we're coming up on that sort of March uh time where we have been in this set of circumstances for about a year and it's changed a lot of the ways that we do things and then we have seen some very interesting elections and protests and things of this nature and so it is a an interesting time it seems that uh, things are beginning to calm down a little bit now and becoming a little bit more focused uh the uh but your office uh has uh, and, and attorney generals across the state attorneys general across the state and also the federal uh, judicial system has been really stressed because of the new set of circumstances that continues to rise. Uh, uh, I guess uh, when you went to the office beginning about April or May, you were like the rest of us and sort of said, well, what's new today? What's new today? The world has just been upside down, Don. I mean, we've been through a year unlike any other in our lifetimes. It's been the worst public health pandemic in over a hundred years. And then you layer on top of that, the uh, protests that resulted after the killing of George Floyd, and then the craziness of the election, which only became more crazy after the election when we all thought it was already over. And then people seem to think, now we got to keep fighting the results and try to uh, change the results after they've already been made by the voters. And so, yeah, it has been a crazy year. And uh, my my office has been involved in a lot of these issues, whether it's responding to COVID, whether it's responding to the criminal justice issues, or whether it's making sure that voters in North Carolina have the right to vote, the opportunity to vote, and that their votes are the ones that determine the result. Well, there's a very thin line in a democracy between individual rights and uh, the collective rights of the public. Uh, uh, They often conflict, and I don't think we've ever seen such a contrast as we've seen recently. Uh, A lot of people are protesting under the, the, uh, what they perceive as the right of free speech, but yet that has its limits too. So how do you, as North Carolina's top legal officer, look at how, where do you find that dividing line between individual rights and collective rights. Absolutely. Everybody has the right to believe what they want to believe. They have the right to say what they want to say, to protest where they want to protest. Um, That doesn't mean what they're saying is right or constructive. And so uh, it's one thing for people to go and say, I want to protest this and and, uh, 
change the voting results, throw out the votes of everybody in, in Pennsylvania and everybody in Georgia and everybody in Arizona, because I don't like how they voted. And I think that because I don't like their results, their votes shouldn't count. Now, it's one thing to believe it. It's one thing to say it if you're just a person. But if you're an elected official and you care deeply about this country and the health and strength of our democracy, you have a responsibility to lead and to speak the truth. What is perhaps the most exceptional uh, aspect about our country is that for 220 years, we have changed who was in the White House from one party to another 25 separate times. And it has always been peaceful. And the reason it's been peaceful is because in our democracy, when you lose the election, you're hurt, you're upset, you're frustrated, you're angry. But then you say to yourself, all right, next election, I'm going to win. I'm going to work harder over the next four years to convince more people to go with what I think is the right vision for the state, the country, whatever it is you're, you're trying to govern. And uh, because people have been willing to do that and hand over the power, we've had the strongest democracy in, for the longest period of time in the history of this planet. It's an incredible accomplishment. Uh, we've never had a president refuse to accept the will of the voters and try to overturn the results. It's one thing to go to court and say there were election irregularities and I want those irregularities pursued. And if I'm right and you need to make certain changes to who, what votes count and which ones don't, then you know, fine. But that happened. And the president's campaign team went to court some 60 plus times in four states around this country. And they only won one matter. Every other challenge they made, and it wasn't just on procedural grounds of standing, their substantive claims, their assertions, allegations of widespread fraud were considered by courts, in fact, considered by Trump appointed judges, his own judges, who said, no, there's nothing here. Um, and at that point, it's incumbent upon leaders to stand up and speak the truth and tell what really happened because people listen to their leaders. And if leaders give oxygen to lies and misrepresentations, then it will grow and flourish and it will end up in a violent insurrection like what we saw on January 6th that just absolutely uh, broke my heart as a person who loves this country to see people engage in violence, to try to overturn the will of the voters, the consent of the governed. And so to me, the line between individual and collective is, yeah, you can say what you want, you can believe what you want, but you have no right to engage in uh, a criminal behavior, a violent insurrection. And frankly, I think the standard for elected leaders is higher. And every leader needs to stand up and say out loud that whether I voted for Joe Biden or not, he won the presidency. And, you know, uh, the other interesting thing that sort of ties into all these things that have sort of culminated in the last uh, uh, year has been the change in how people get their news. Uh, yeah. For years and years, we had a very strong and vibrant printed press uh, that's basically gone these days. Uh, the newspaper still published, but not anywhere close to the 
circulation levels that it once enjoyed. Um, so people are not uh, seeing what uh, at, uh, at one point we had a balance between what was on the front page and what was on the editorial page, even though there was always that controversy that uh, there was no such thing as uh, uh, an unbiased news story. And I guess that's probably true. But uh, we, we've gone to all these various sources of getting news. And uh, I did something kind of interesting the last month. I spent two whole days watching uh, each of the three major cable networks. <laughs> and uh, I can see why if someone only views that network, they have a different view. Because <laughs> yeah. the news is presented so differently. Well, uh, and that's those networks. Uh, and, you know, they may cover the left-right spectrum. But then if you get on social media, then it goes further to the left and further to the right. I mean, I, I don't know if you saw anything about the uh, Georgia Congresswoman uh, Green yesterday give her speech about, you know, she said that 9-11 didn't happen, that the Parkland shootings didn't happen. I mean, just all these horrendously hurtful and wrong, uh, factually wrong statements. And she said, I was allowed to believe these things because I went on the internet and, and read and got confused. And I mean, first of all, she's not taking any agency about her own decision-making, but the internet is just, if you want to only hear what you want to believe, you can go find that. And I agree with you wholeheartedly that we've lost this common appreciation of truth and fact. And that makes having political disputes more difficult. Look, I mean, should the recovery bill be $1.9 trillion or $900 billion or $600 billion? These are absolutely legitimate policy debates where you can, of good faith, have different views of those questions because they're complicated. But let's start by accepting that the pandemic is real and that people are dying and that the economy is suffering and people have lost their jobs. Like You got to start with the factual basis and then let's fight over policy. And that's what we're losing right now. And we... Each person, each American has to be committed to trying to get us back to that place. And certainly each elected official needs to be committed to trying to get to that place. Let, let's have differences, but let's, let's be civil and let's, let's be passionate, but let's be civil. The other thing that I've observed in the last uh, couple of years because of the uh, demise, the, the other demise, the thing that sort of demised in importance, by the way, was the major network newscast, Where's Hunter Wal uh, Walter Cronkite and Huntley Brinkley when we really need them. Yes. Um, because those newscasts have become less and less important and less and less dependent uh, for, uh, uh, we are less and less dependent on them for a balanced view of what's going on. Um, that, that's another thing that's changed. But uh, I bet you most people couldn't tell you who the three network anchors are today. I mean, it used to be these people were larger than life, you know, David Brinkley and Walter Cronkite. And I mean, who, who are they today? The people don't get their news that way anymore. Yeah. Well, I'm, I, <laughs> I would be embarrassed. Uh, I am embarrassed to tell you that I can, I couldn't name the three anchors right now. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm in the media business. So that, that tells you how much it's changed. The other thing that has happened uh, because 
we seem to get focused on just one single issue these days and things that were important two weeks ago or four weeks ago or a month ago are sort of back burned. I give you a good example. Uh, it hasn't been that long that the news was occupied by the crisis with North Korea. The crisis still is there, but we hear nothing or see nothing about it anymore. I mean, once something gets pushed off to the side, it gets uh, uh, off the off the front burner, so to speak. There's no question. And one really clear example in my work is the opioid epidemic, which I've been battling as a as a policy issue for the four years I've been in office so far. You know, this is the deadliest drug epidemic in our nation's history. But really, I think the public can only handle one public health crisis at a time. And obviously, COVID-19 is the most important thing we're facing in the country. But the opioid epidemic hasn't gone anywhere. In fact, it's raging worse than it ever has. And so we can't ignore that. Well, uh, these are these are certainly problems that we're going to have to face. And I think the media has a um, responsibility to see what they can do to self-control themselves and uh see if they can't present a better balanced uh, uh, picture of what's really going on and keep all issues sort of front and center so that we can focus on them. Well, our guest is Attorney General Josh Stein, and uh, we will be back with more here on Carolina's Newsmakers right after these messages. Hey, Dad, how do airplanes fly? What's in this box? Can I touch this? Where does sand come from? Is this tree good for climbing? What happens if I mix these two things together? How are babies made? What does this thing do? Kids are curious about everything, including guns. Talking to them about gun safety in your home is a good first step, but you can do more. Always keep your guns locked, unloaded, and stored separately from ammunition. Storing your guns securely is the best way to prevent family fire, including unintentional shootings. For more information on safe gun storage and ways to keep your family safe, visit endfamilyfire.org. That's endfamilyfire.org. What do we keep in the attic? What's this thing called? Can I ride my bike backwards? Like I said, kids are curious. It's up to us to keep them safe. Brought to you by End Family Fire, Brady, and the Ad Council. When you went car shopping, you meant business. You ace vehicle history searches and test drives. You out salesmen to the salesman. Now you've got your wheels. If you manage that, you can get your retirement plan on track. Visiting aceyourretirement.org can help. With 401k tips and smart saving strategies, you'll have the info you need to get more for your future. Go to aceyourretirement.org because when it comes to speeding past financial challenges, you're an ace. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. The Attorney General of the State of North Carolina recently elected to his second term. Josh Stein is our guest, and he comes to North Carolina via being a graduate of Dartmouth. Uh, Dartmouth I started to say Dartmouth University. Dartmouth is still one of the few universities that claims it's a college. Almost yeah. everybody changes their name to university. Uh, uh, so, uh, Josh, how did you get interested in serving in the, the public arena? What what caused you to uh, focus your career on public service? My, my parents, um, I, I uh, apple doesn't fall far far from the tree, and my parents raised me. I was just raised in a house where um, what you do every day is supposed to try 
to make things better for more people, to, to find problems, fix them so that more people have a better life. We, we moved to North Carolina right after I was born, less than a year old, back in 1967, so that my dad, uh, Adam, could join with Julius Chambers in Charlotte and uh, also James Ferguson. And they formed North Carolina's first integrated law firm. And they went on to win a number of pathbreaking civil rights cases about integrating public accommodations and desegregating schools, uh, dealing with employment discrimination and, and voting rights. And so that's what they did every day. That's how I was raised. And uh, I always knew that I wanted to try to do something where I could uh, use whatever talent, skills, ability I have to try to, to make things better. The, um, uh, I, I want to change the subject now and get back to the opioid crisis because you have spent the better part of your first term worrying about that issue. And as we talked about earlier, it's sort of been pushed off the front burner as far as being uh, in public awareness. It is still a major crisis, but you've had some recent successes. So let's talk a little bit about where that stands and sort of a little bit more about the history of that situation. Yeah, this is a crisis that's been about 20, 25 years in the making. Uh, it's predominantly one driven by overprescription, um, fueled by the pharmaceutical companies, the manufacturers who are promoting doctors to prescribe these pills. And uh, it worked beyond their dreams. The United States prescribes more pills per capita than any other country in the world, something like 10 times more pills per capita than what Japan did, five times more than European countries did. Um, and uh, as a result, almost one-to-one -one lockstep with increase in prescriptions was increase in overdose deaths. Uh, and it has been the deadliest drug epidemic in our history. Over the last maybe six, seven years, it's really worsened because people have transitioned to heroin, which is another opioid. And then there's a more powerful chemical opioid called fentanyl which is manufactured in China and Mexico predominantly, that's being added to heroin, and it's incredibly deadly. And so there, there was a real spike in overdose deaths uh, in 16, 17, and 18. And uh, I was working to try to prevent people from becoming addicted. We reduced, we passed the STOP Act to reduce overprescribing. Uh, we engaged in a public education program called morepowerfulnc.org that's still a great source of information. If anybody out there has any questions about what they can do as an individual or if they have loved ones who are affected, morepowerfulnc.org. We partnered with law enforcement to give them more tools to go after the drug traffickers and drug dealers. And I've been involved in a series of litigation against drug manufacturers and distributors uh, to hold the ones that profited accountable and we actually achieved some real meaningful success. In 2019, we had the first decline in opioid overdose deaths in years. And we were beginning to feel like we'd actually turn the corner. And then this COVID pandemic hit and just ruined everything. The, the dislocation, the unemployment, the isolation, the disruption, uh, all of those are terrible on everyone's mental health, right? We've all struggled with challenges because of COVID-19. But if you have addiction or mental health crises, the problems are really compounded. And we've seen an incredible uptick in overdose deaths so that this crisis is now raging worse than it ever has. 
Now, recently, uh, in, I mean, in fact, as a matter of fact, in the last couple of days, uh, it's been announced about a settlement. And so uh, the legal actions are beginning to come uh, true. And uh, how is this going to help you in this fight? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I've been really honored to, to help lead the effort of attorneys general from across this country. And what's nice is, Don, you know, so much of this country is politically divided, but this is an issue. And there are a number of issues where Republican and Democratic attorneys general are working hand in hand. I mean, we are just absolutely in lockstep to hold accountable these drug companies that created and fueled this crisis. And so last year we reached a settlement with a, a manufacturer called Mallinckrodt, 1.6 billion. Yesterday, we announced a settlement with McKinsey Consulting and people might ask themselves, well, what's a consulting company got to do with it? Well, I have sued Purdue Pharma and their owners, the Sackler family, who I believe are as or more responsible for creating this problem than any other family or company in this country, uh, because they were the ones that manufactured Oxycontin and really sparked the um, overprescribing that occurred and, and resulted in, in wide scale addiction. Well, in the course of our investigation of Purdue, we got documents that showed McKinsey, a consulting company that advised them for 15 years, they helped design marketing plans where they thought that they could turbocharge sales by targeting uh, high volume prescribers to prescribe even more and pills at higher potency for longer periods of time. And sadly, like I said, it worked because Purdue made money hand over fist, McKinsey made its fees and the people suffered. Addiction increased, overdose increased, and deaths increased because of greed. We reached a $573 million settlement with McKinsey yesterday. Those funds are dedicated to going to deal with this crisis, to abate it. It can fund treatment programs, recovery service programs. It can deal with harm reduction strategies to keep people alive, prevention strategies so that other people don't become addicted. Um, the key is that these funds have to go to help people who are in need. Very often we see large settlements that the court doles out and sometimes these amounts are never paid, uh, particularly in, uh, in civil lawsuits between individuals where an individual uh, is judged to owe so, uh, for OJ Simpson's case comes to mind where he is, uh, has a liability to some, uh, but he will never pay it uh, partially because he doesn't have all of it. In this case, will you actually get the money? A hundred percent. North Carolina's share of the 573 million is, is 19 million, nearly 19 million. And we're, we're going to get a 15 million in the next 60 days. And then the 4 million will be paid over the next four years. Um, the 1.6 billion that we reached with Mallinckrodt, that was in the bankruptcy process. And so we will get those funds doled out by the bankruptcy court over time. I am helping to lead negotiations against the three major drug distributors and other drug manufacturers like Johnson and Johnson. And uh, if we get, if we reach a deal and I, and I urge those companies to step up and act quickly uh, and with uh, conscientiously because 
if we get these funds, we can start treating the people who are sick. They are absolutely urgently needed dollars today um, that these are going concern companies and they will resolve it because they think that they want to move on and they want to help deal with the crisis they created. And we will get those funds. This uh, leads me to another uh, topic, and that is the fact that uh, soon we will have and soon is sort of uh, up in the air right now as to when soon is, but we should have the results of the census. It's going to change a lot of things in North Carolina. Uh, one, of course, is that we are likely to pick up another congressional seat, but it also uh, means it's time to redistrict not only our congressional districts, but our general assembly seats and districts as well. Uh, and also, I, I suspect this comes into play when we begin to get our share of uh, distributions uh, like the opioid uh, situation. Uh, what other things will are you waiting on for um, uh, the results of the census? The, the census really is a critical um, function of the government. And I mean, sadly, I, I mean, when you think about the census and you think about the postal service, these are just core American functions. And uh, in the last year, both of them have become politicized and were used to try to be manipulated uh, by the administration, the former administration, to achieve political power and maintain political power. So I had, I had to actually sue the administration because they were trying to change who was counted in the census, which would have hurt North Carolina. It would have reduced the chances that we'd actually get an additional 14th congressperson. And the count, as you said, is not only critical for determining how many Congress people a state has, but so much federal funding is allocated on a per capita basis. And so if we were not counting all the people who lived here, then the funding that came for our schools and our roads would have been reduced as a result. So that's why I sued. It went to the United States Supreme Court and we won. And so I'm very grateful for that. So yes, we're gonna look for the census to help figure out how many Congress people we have, what our federal appropriations are going forward, and it will, redistrict the legislature, uh, when the legislature does the redistricting, um, I believe it should be done by an independent commission, um, but whether they do it through an independent commission or themselves, what is clear is there are state constitutional requirements that have to be satisfied. Fair election clause, equal protection clause, free speech and association clause, these are all found in our state constitution and the legislature had violated those provisions the last time they drew the, drew the maps in 2011. And uh, I hope that they respect the state constitution. The key about redistricting, and in fact, in any election, is that voters should choose who their representatives are. The representatives shouldn't choose who their voters are because when they do that, they end up choosing only their voters and it just drives the two parties to further polar extreme because a, a, a Republican in a Republican district and a Democrat in a Democratic district, they're only worried about their primary election at that point. They only care about not being beaten to the left if you're a Democrat or to the right if you're a Republican, which makes compromise so unlikely. What we need is competitive districts because when you have a competitive district, you're not only talking to your people, you have to talk to the other people too. And that's where progress and compromise occurs. Well, it, one of the things that's interesting to me is the fact that uh, 
you don't have to live in your district if you serve in Congress, United States Congress, but you have to live in your district if you are uh, in the General Assembly. And that is one of the things that has caused some uh, uh, strange districts to because incumbents begin to make deals to keep themselves in in uh, in, uh, in office. And uh, you will see some funny looking maps. There's no question about it. But it shouldn't be about the elected officials. It should be about the people and the voters. Well, it's uh, it's a very interesting set of circumstances. Uh, and, uh, you know, North Carolina has a, will have a great deal of background because we, we've gone through the redistricting court system, uh, cases time and time again. So we should have learned some lessons and should be able to, to do a little bit better job of uh, how we do it this next time. And I, and I think we, uh, I think I see some evidence that that might happen. I'm, I'm hopeful for that. My fingers are crossed. I hope you're right, Don. Yeah. Our guest is Attorney General Josh Stein. He's the uh, he's beginning his second term, and we'll be back. And next time we uh, in the next segment, we're going to talk about uh, some scams and things of this nature that are ongoing, uh, regardless to COVID nineteen and all that situation. We'll be back right after these messages. One forty five over ninety two. One eighty over one eleven. One hundred and eighty two over a hundred, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Melissa from Michigan. I work an extra part-time job serving lunch at my child's school, but I still can't afford to put food on our table. Daniel from California. Choosing whether to pay the rent or pay to fix the car to get to work doesn't leave us with much at all. Now we can't even pay for meals. Hunger is a story we can end. End it at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back with uh, Attorney General Josh Stein, and we have been talking about uh, all the certain things that uh, are so much in the news these days, like uh, we've seen during the last three months, the various protests, the changes in the administration and so forth. And then we've talked in general about the COVID-19, uh, uh, not only the COVID situation, but also the opioid situation. I want to turn now and spend a little bit of time in this segment talking about the more routine things that are going on in your office and will continue to go on regardless to these front burner projects that we're talking about. Um, one of the things, of course, that uh, people resent are robocalls and uh, unsolicited calls coming in on your cell phone and your telephone coming. Line. Where do we stand on that? Annoyed. <laughs> I'm as annoyed. <laughs> As everybody else, these calls are so frustrating. Um, but, you know, the reason they exist isn't to drive you and me crazy, Don. They exist to steal from vulnerable people. 
and they succeed to the tune of billions of dollars every year. And so I'm doing everything I can to try to stop these robocalls. Uh, I put together a 51 attorney general coalition, again, every AG, Democratic and Republican, and we negotiated a series of anti-robocall principles with the major phone carriers. And basically what they agreed to do was to more rapidly deploy technology to try to screen out more of these calls than uh, they have done in the past and to do a better job cooperating with us, law enforcement, so that we can find out who the callers are. Now, on the technology front, I think, uh, depending on who your cell phone carrier is, a lot of times you may be getting a robocall and it will say um, robocall alert or spam alert. Um, and that's something that we ask them to do so that people could know to just let that go to voicemail. Um, but we want them to do a better job technologically keeping these calls from coming in because really it is a, a technological battle. The robocallers are using the internet to hide who they are. It's called spoofing where the number looks like a number you may even know, but it's not the actual number making the phone call. And we can actually put a digital fingerprint on the call so that the robocaller cannot misrepresent what number they're calling from. And that will really help us, one, drive down robocalling, but two, make it easier to find out who they are so that they can be held legally accountable. I sued a robocaller last year, a guy in Texas who made some 75 million calls into North Carolina about car warranties. I'm sure everybody's gotten those calls about car warranties being expired. Um, so we're putting a stop to him. Uh, and my next initiative is I want to go after the phone carriers, the ones who transfer the call from one carrier to the next to the next. It's usually not the big companies that you and I are most familiar with, you know, T-Mobile, Verizon, AT&T. They aren't the originators of the call. They're the end. They're the ones you and I use. But there are some very small telephone companies that originate these calls, and they make a fraction of a penny off of every one of them. We've got to hold them accountable for their role in this crisis, and, and that's where I'm going to start focusing my energy. Well, it, it, it as you said, it is very irritating. And, and the other thing that is sad about it is occasionally you miss a very legitimate call because you see a number that comes up on your cell phone and you don't recognize it. So you don't take the call and it turns out it was legitimate and you miss something that's important. Yep. I've had that happen too. Yeah. It's uh, that happens uh, more than I'd like to say. And uh, sometimes it's very costly when it has to do with termination of an insurance policy, for example. <laughs> no. And uh, that, uh, uh, that happened to me recently. Uh, and uh, I missed a call that I thought was a robo call and it turned out it was important. And I missed the delivery, same thing. I just yeah. didn't answer the call because I'm like, I don't know that number. Uh, and of course, the other thing that bothers me about those is they, they uh, very often target the elderly who are lonesome and actually look forward to getting some of the calls. And, and it's really worsening during COVID because imagine how many people are out there who you know, they, they're told don't go out and they're not going out because they don't want to catch the virus. And so they're at home, they're more isolated, they're lonelier, and it makes them more of a target. You know, seniors, they have more money, they have more wealth, they have a nest egg that they've built up over a lifetime. So for a lot of reasons, they are very attractive targets for criminals. 
And we spent a lot of time trying to educate people about what to look for to avoid being scammed. You know, when they're pitching something that sounds so good, uh, then you know it's not going to be true. Or if they really try to change your emotions, play with your emotions, either make you incredibly excited, like you won a, a sweepstakes or a big award, or they try to make you afraid, like the IRS or the Social Security has a, a warrant out for your arrest. And if you don't pay immediately, you're going to get arrested. They get you all excitable because that's when we don't make good decisions. And they know that. They're master psychologists, psychiatrists. And so um, people just need to be really careful and hang up. Here's the thing is if you have any doubt, if you just, you don't know, are they real or are they not real? Is it something I need to worry about or not? Just hang up, call my office toll free. We have people who have incredible experience with this. And the toll free number is 877-5-NO-SCAM. And if you call that number, you can just say, hey, is this real or not? It's so much better to protect yourself from a loss than it is to try to get that money back. We have uh, a constant barrage of uh, Medicaid fraud cases, too, that sometimes involve telephone calls and sometimes are uh, knocks at the door and sometimes letters. Yes. The, the scammers use every method of communication. They use the telephone, obviously. They're now doing a lot of texting. They do knocking on the door. They do social media. They do email. Um, and the thing is, is you just don't know who the person is. They knock on your door and say, I'm with the county. They send you an email and say, I'm the Prince of Bahrain and you're entitled to money. Or they text you and say, I'm Amazon, you're due a refund, click this link. It's not always about trying to steal your money. A lot of times they're trying to put um, malware on your computer to freeze your computer so that you have to pay them a ransom. Or they're trying to get you to put your personal information on a form, which they then can use and commit identity theft. You know, just this week, Don, I learned uh, that somebody used my social security number to claim unemployment benefits. And I now have to spend time trying to clean that mess up. And it's because somebody stole my uh, social security number a couple of years ago from my, um, my accountant. And earlier they filed taxes trying to claim a refund. I mean, it's a total pain in the tail. Uh, but we have really helpful tools on identity theft for people. If you go to our website, ncdoj.gov slash identity theft, there's all kinds of useful tips on what you can do to protect yourself. So look, my social security number has been compromised. The criminals have it. They sell it on the internet. It's gone. But I put a security freeze on my credit reports so nobody can take out credit in my name without me putting my PIN number in there to approve the application. So even when you've been a victim of identity theft, you can take measures to, to protect yourself. I would say that that's very bold if you uh, try to rip off the identity of the attorney general. I, I think that somebody's got to be really bold to do that. Well, one thing about these criminals is they are bold. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, we also have uh, uh, people hacking your Facebook, uh, Facebook accounts and so forth. I, I, I signed up for Facebook. I don't participate, but someone hacked mine recently. Yeah. And of course, they send out emails. Uh, so one of my friends uh, got an email that I was starting a new business and, and uh, they could invest in it. And um, that uh, 
that's just one more thing you have to worry about. Someone hacked both my Facebook and Instagram this week. So I've spent untold minutes having to deal with that headache. Here's really good advice on all of these things uh, is it's called dual authentication. That is a really important uh, way to enhance the security, the protections of your accounts, whether it's your bank or it's your Facebook or whatever it is. If you have your password, but it's easy for these criminals to steal passwords or even guess passwords. A lot of people, a lot of us, we, we're too lazy. We use the same password in different places. They'll hack in on one system, steal a password, apply it to all these other programs. And sometimes those passwords work. Um, so the dual authentication is, is if they compromise your password, it's not enough to change your account. Have them have the company have your cell phone number or your email and they'll email you a code to confirm that it's actually you trying to change your password rather than the criminal. And that's a really important protection that we recommend people use. Well, I'm trying to take notes on all these things I'm supposed to do. And, and uh, it's, it's really hard to uh, keep up with uh, those who are trying to work against me. And they seem to always outwit me somewhere or another. You and me both. Um, the other thing, of course, that we have, we fortunately have not had uh, a terrible weather disaster uh, in the past year, uh, which would have been really bad considering everything else that's going on. But uh, there's always a, a number of scams that have to do with uh, emergency repairs during hurricanes and tornadoes and things of that nature. What's going on there? Well, actually, with the coronavirus, it was an emergency. And so it wasn't a natural disaster like we're accustomed to, particularly in Eastern North Carolina. But because it was an emergency, scammers still tried to exploit it to take advantage of people's desperation. And, and that's why North Carolina has a price gouging law. And what our law says is when a state of emergency is declared, it's unlawful for a seller to charge an unreasonably excessive price on things that are really important. So after the hurricanes in Eastern North Carolina, we saw a lot with tree removal and home repair after the storms. And I, I don't remember exactly how many lawsuits I brought, probably six or seven against probably 15, 20 defendants. And we've resolved most of those at this point. And it's been about a million dollars we've gotten back for North Carolina consumers, uh, one of which was the largest price gouging case in state history. With the coronavirus, we saw two different kinds of price gouging. One had to do with a, a towing company in Charlotte that was putting boots on trucks, who, which had permission to be parked where they were. But then the towing company was charging like $3,000, $4,000, up to $4,400 to the truckers to get their roads back on, I mean, their trucks back on the road. These were trucks carrying medical supplies, food and water. And I'm talking about in March and April when things were really very scary. Um, so we put a stop to that, that uh, practice. Um, the other was a company out of New Jersey that was selling masks at inflated prices. And they were trying to make $30 million in profits in a single transaction. They were trying to rip off Duke Hospital, UNC Hospital, um, the Red Cross. It, it was terrible. So we got them to agree to not do that and to pay a, a, a large fine. Any other scams that uh, we, uh, I know there's a number involving uh, COVID-19. A lot having to do with vaccines. Basically the scams morph 
depending on what's going on. If it's during the economic impact payment, there are scams about economic impact payment. If it's about vaccines, it's about vaccines. So what we're seeing now are scams urging people to send money so that they can advance their place in line. You cannot increase your priority to get a shot by paying somebody money. The shots are free. Go to your county health department, go to the state Department of Health and Human Services website. Uh, that's where you get the real information. That's how you sign up. Uh, do not pay anybody any money to try to get ahead of the line because it won't work. And again, uh, you can get information from that toll-free number, 877-5-NO-SCAM. 877-5-NO-SCAM will uh, give you uh, information about scams and so forth from the attorney general's office. And of course you can also call in person and you'll find that information on that site as well. We'll be back with more here on Carolina Newsmakers with our guests, attorney general, uh, Josh Stein. And we'll do that right after we take time out for these messages. As an 18 year old, I let my mistakes kind of take over my life. I was 0.5 credits away from completing high school and I didn't do it. 10 years later, at age 28, Jackie finished her high school diploma. When I found out that I was pregnant, I know that I had to do something for myself if I wanted to make her a better person and provide a better life for her. My family never stopped pushing for me to be better because they knew what I could become and who I could become as a person. My support team is amazing. The educational director, my sister, and even my seven-year-old daughter has just been more than the support that I could ask for. But I've been given an opportunity, and I'm just thankful for it. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. America, your children have an amazing superpower. They can help save lives by not having playdates. That's right. By replacing get-togethers with virtual playdates and video chats, they can help slow the evil spread of germs. And if your superheroes do go outside, make sure they continue their superhero wing by staying six feet away from others to protect everyone in America land. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week is the Attorney General of North Carolina, who recently began his second term in that, uh, in that office. Uh, and uh, we have talked about all sorts of things that have happened during the last year. One of the things I wanted to, to uh, bring up that uh, we talked about earlier in the program um, uh, we've had a number of protests and, uh, one of the questions I've got is, uh, who pays for all this? Uh, when someone's property is damaged, for example, uh, in downtown Raleigh, a number of, uh, of, uh, businesses had damage because of the protesters. Do the insurance companies pay for that? Or is this, uh, does this fall back on the property owner or who pays for it? Uh, it depends. It's a case-by-case -case situation. Uh, it depends on what their insurance policy actually covers. Mostly, the most typical is the insurance companies would pay. Um, dependent on the amount of the damage, I talked to one property owner who just decided to pay for it out of pocket so that they didn't have to deal with the insurance company or have an increase in their premiums. Uh, I mean, just absolutely heart heartbreaking for these 
businesses, many of them restaurants that were already taking it on the chin because of COVID-19 and all the, the restrictions on dining. And then to have the restaurants, uh, glasses broken, uh, tables turned upside down, uh, it was really heartbreaking. And I talked to a number of the um, business owners and, um, you know, they, they were brave. They put a really brave face on it. And, you know, they they felt terrible about everything is what happened. Uh, they really felt. Well, apparently what happens in many cases is the uh, uh, out, third parties take advantage of a protest. Uh, in other words, the legitimate concern folks who are having a protest are not the ones that actually cause the damage. It's people who are taking advantage of that set of circumstances and join in the protest and begin to become looters and things of this nature. How do you, pro how do you go after these people? Well, they need to be prosecuted. People who engage in criminal behavior like destruction of private property, uh, looting, um, violence, that those are crimes. And you're right, the peaceful protesters they need to be respected, but the looters need to be tried and convicted. And uh, I guess sometimes uh, it's it's hard to, to locate them and find them. But uh, I know in the situation of the, uh, the United States Capitol, uh, there's a lot of video and people are beginning to uh, find out that they uh, are going to be prosecuted. And they should be. I mean, what, what they did is uh, beyond the pale. Uh, you know, like I said earlier, First Amendment protects people to say things even when they're wrong. And the people who were there at the um, rally outside the White House, you know, I, I just fundamentally disagree with them about whose votes should count. I think everybody's vote should count. But that's their right. Nobody has the right to storm the Capitol and obviously kill law enforcement. There's a task force for racial equality and criminal justice going on. Tell us a little bit about that work and what, where it stands now. It was an initiative of the governor that arose after the killing of George Floyd up in Minnesota and the resulting public protests, um, which you know happened all over the country. Um, and what that moment really shined a bright light on things are not the way they should be. Our system of justice is imperfect and needs to be improved. And in particular, we need to address the way that the criminal justice system addresses, treats differently black people and white people. Um, because as you know, the words on the Supreme Court building aren't one system of justice for white people and another system of justice for black people. The words are equal justice under law. And so the governor wanted us to look not only at law enforcement, citizen interaction, like use of force policies, but he wanted us to look at the entire criminal justice system um, and identify the disparities that exist. And sadly, they are real. I mean, if you look at the numbers, uh, African-Americans are uh, stopped for traffic offenses disproportionately. They are arrested disproportionately. They are detained before their trial without bail disproportionately. They are convicted more frequently for longer sentences. I mean, basically, we have problems throughout the entire system. And our goal, our mandate was to identify solutions 
to those disparities to make them better so that the system is fairer and better, but also to work for their implementation to try to make it real. And so we spent about five or six months, we issued our report in December and the task force was really a, a broad cross section of stakeholders. It included uh, sheriffs and chiefs of police and officers and prosecutors, but it also included mayors and county commissioners and community leaders. Uh, and then it involved public defenders and criminal justice reform advocates and justice involved individuals. So we really had the broad spectrum of perspectives represented and we made 125 recommendations to the governor. Um, some of them are around law enforcement practices and others involve the courts and our jails and prisons. Uh, and they ranged from sort of reimagining the way public safety is delivered that trying to, when there's a, a call, the vast majority of calls that law enforcement respond to from 911 don't involve criminal acts. They involve non-criminal emergencies, oftentimes mental health crises. And much better to have a social worker or somebody who's trained in mental health crisis intervention training um, than take law enforcement's time, which can be better spent trying to solve crimes. And so trying to respond to public safety crises differently, um, having new policing practices, more community policing, uh, more moving people with addiction into the healthcare system and out of our jails, trying to definitely having policies on use of force, banning chokeholds, having a duty to intervene and report when an officer sees another officer engaging in excessive use of force, more accountability and transparency, body and dash cameras provide an excellent way to have an objective view of what happened, which actually serves both the officer and the citizen uh, interest. Um, having independent investigations and prosecutions when there are police involved shootings so that the public has trust in the results of the criminal justice system. We wanna have statewide accreditation of law enforcement agencies across the state to increase the professionalism of law enforcement. Recruiting and training, we wanna have the best people recruited. We wanna have the best training so that they're ready to go do the job. There's a program called the criminal justice fellows based on the teaching fellows where we want the state to fund two years, uh, well, to lend money to people in high school who wanna go get a community college degree for two years to go into law enforcement, that if they serve for four years, their law enforcement, uh, their loans will be forgiven. Uh, we wanna decriminalize certain things like marijuana possession. This is one of the more interesting things I learned is Black people and white people smoke marijuana at very similar rates, uh, research shows. But if you look at who is arrested for marijuana possession and marijuana paraphernalia possession, and by the way, it's like 60,000 people a year are arrested. It's disproportionately black people. 61% are people of color. And we think that it should be uh, a civil infraction and not a crime if you possess marijuana. Uh, and we think that people with prior records should have their records expunged. And so we had other recommendations too, as you can tell with 125, I could go on for the rest of our time, but it's all about trying to make that criminal justice system work fairer and better. Many of those actions or those recommendations are going to require legislation. Uh, will we begin to see 
some bills and legislation introduced in this legislative session that, uh, in fact, works on some of those recommendations? That, that's our hope, Don. Uh, criminal justice reform has actually been, I mentioned opioids as an issue where Democrats and Republicans have been able to work together. So is criminal justice reform. Like it was the Republican legislature that passed the First Step Act and Second Chance Act last uh, session to help people re-enter and to deal with prior old criminal record on nonviolent cases. And so I, I really tip my hat to them for that. And there was a House Select Committee that was put together by Speaker Tim Moore, and they made a number of recommendations similar to ones that we have made. The Sheriff's Association, the Chiefs of Police Association, and the District Attorneys Association, they have all made a number of recommendations. And there is a great deal of overlap. And so we are having conversations with legislators, both Republican and Democratic, and our hope is that we can see a number of these reforms enacted this year. We've got a couple of minutes left. And so uh, you, you've mentioned all these initiatives that uh, have come forth, not only from the uh, Task Force for Racial Equality, but other things that you're working on. So what are your goals, both short term and long term, as you begin your second term? My, my goal is always the same, and it's to protect the people of North Carolina. And I do this in a lot of different ways. We do our criminal justice work. So reforming our criminal justice system so that it treats everyone the same, regardless of their race, um, promoting public safety, eliminating the backlog of untested sexual assault kits that remains in North Carolina. We're making great progress, but we still have work to do. Tackling the opioid epidemic and holding the drug man manufacturers and distributors accountable so they pay to help us clean up this mess. Uh, on the uh, consumer side, making sure that we do a better job on robocalls. I've sued both Facebook and Google for antitrust violations, for abusing their monopoly positions in social media and in internet search to disadvantage competitors and you and me. So I want them to stop doing that. Making sure that our environment is clean, the, the, the water that people drink at home and the air that we breathe, that it's clean by holding polluters accountable. And I, I sued a DuPont and Camores over the discharge of a chemical called Chem Gen X uh, outside of Fayetteville. Um, so making them clean up that mess. Uh, so it's all, I also want to make sure that we're, you know, promoting clean energy and building an economy for the future. So it's, it's about protecting people in a variety of different ways. Well, a lot of things are on your plate, and uh, we uh, congratulate you on your reelection and uh, look forward to seeing the results of your, your work and, as you said, protecting the citizens of North Carolina. And it's been a pleasure having you on the program. Again, that uh, toll-free number for scams is 877-5-NO-SCAM, 877-5-NO-SCAM. Well, uh, we've come to the end of our program. We appreciate uh, the Attorney General, Josh Stein, being our guest, and we will look forward to being with you again next week. If you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or share it with a friend or hear the segments that you might have missed and you've been listening to the half-hour version of this program, you can go to carolinanewsmakers.com and find that information. Again, our program has been produced by Jason Kong, and as I said, he'll have another guest for us next week. Have a good week, everybody. 
Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.